Welcome, everyone, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast. I'm Professor Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, I am delighted to be here with Kevin Bardosh. Kevin is the uh, research director and the director of Collateral Global, which is a charity in the UK. I'm a, just full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a trustee of this charity. Uh, the goal of the charity, the mission of the charity, is to document the harms that the lockdowns uh, globally from 2020 and onward did to the poor of the world, with a focus especially on the poorest countries in the world. Um, and, and, with a, and again, with an emphasis on uh, documenting these harms in a, in a, in a scholarly way with, with data and with rigorous analysis. Uh, Kevin, thank you for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure, Jay. So, Kevin, so Kevin um, I, I've, I've asked you to come on the podcast because you wrote a, a, an incredible report going through the literature on uh, on the on the lockdown harms. Uh, and, you know, because it you know, although it hasn't re basically received a lot of attention from the public at large or from the press, in fact, a lot of scholars have been working very hard to understand what effect the lockdowns have had on the poor, on children, on, on working class families, and uh, and not just in rich countries like the U.S. or the U.K., but uh, but on in poor countries. And so, and so I, I, I am so I delighted, delighted and, and I'm glad to have you here to, to, to explain to the audience this report. This report. So first, can so first you just, why don't you start by telling us um, what, uh, a little bit about, about your background, Kevin? Exactly. I, I mean, I, I, I know something yeah. about you, you have a PhD in medical anthropology. So how did you end up at, at Collateral Global? Yeah, so I've worked for 15 years in public health, global public health programs, mostly in the global south. So in over 20 countries in Africa, Asia, I, you know, and, and that's on infectious disease programs. So, um, you know, I was involved tangentially in the Ebola response. And during the Zika pandemic, I actually led a quite a large mosquito control program in Haiti. Um, so that's dealing with community engagement, messaging, mosquito control, and the whole sort of, you know, range of scientific questions also about, well, where are microcephaly cases happening, et cetera. So, um, and I've also worked a lot on parasitic diseases, um, you know, uh, neglected tropical diseases, et cetera. So, and all of that work, you know, in the global public health community in general, we have these sort of ethical frameworks uh, around not doing harm, around equity or, um, you know, uh, community empowerment, et cetera. And um, we saw a lot of those sort of guiding principles thrown out the window during the COVID response. And I think a lot of people felt like, or a lot of academics who work in this space didn't feel like they had a voice or at least were very confused about where the consensus was, was going. Um, and so my sort of work over the last two years has, has been to try to somewhat speak to that issue, which is obviously a very political issue. Um, but we also, anyhow, I don't want to jump the, jump the range of questions, um, <laughs> too but, much. So, but you, you know, if I understand you worked on, on malaria, uh, in, yeah. in, um, uh, you worked on, as you said, Zika, Zika on, on, on a, a whole host a whole of diseases, diseases before the pandemic, uh, including yeah. with, in fact, I think I saw in your background that you'd worked on reports that you've issued for the, with, with the UN. Uh, so you yeah. have a lot of experience yeah. right. um, in, in uh, infectious disease control and in, and in infectious disease epidemiology and, uh, yeah. and in particular in how large uh, multinational organizations normally respond to yeah. large scale uh, epidemics like this. Um, yeah. and, and and the generally the concern that the, these organizations have for the for the, the poorest people, like people in in right. um, in in the, in the poorest of countries. Um, so, so I mean, so, I, it's, yeah, I mean, it seems to me like it, it's, it's like the perfect background to be able yeah. to understand this 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 COVID uh, the, the COVID response in in light of mm -hmm. how the, the history. Like, and I, so 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 Kevin, you 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 wrote this report. 
uh, and you you've uh, you uh, and it's it's essentially what uh, what scholars might call uh, a, 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 I would call a formal meta analysis, but like a a, a, a a detailed survey of the literature to yeah. date. Uh, t- t- tell us uh, and, and about what the lockdowns have done to the poor countries. Yeah. We're going to talk in detail about this report in just a bit, but I'd love to know first what motivated you to write the report. Right. Yeah. So the report is called. Um, this is the, the title, How Did the COVID-19 uh, Pandemic Response Harm Society? A Global Evaluation and State of Knowledge Review Covering 2020 and 2021. And I think w- what motivated me on, well, there's a lot of things that did, but the, on the one hand, the public discourse and public conversation that there is this sort of scientific consensus. Um, and I've actually called this, and I, I, I'm covering the UK COVID inquiry um, for an online newspaper called Unheard, and I've called this the lockdown doctrine. Um, which is the notion that during an, a respiratory pandemic, you need to lock down society faster and harder uh, as a precondition to get a vaccine, and then you reopen, right? And it, that's a very particular model, a uh, political model, um, and it comes with some very detailed uh, assumptions about reality and also about scientific evidence that I think is very flawed. Um, and what I saw essentially is you have thousands of papers on all these different topics about the harms of non-pharmaceutical interventions during covid and yet we don't have a good sense of, well, how do you put those together, right? How do you weigh, let's say, the, the control of COVID, which has these very neat statistics, right? Like cases, deaths, you can sort of talk. It, it has this sort of simplicity and elegance to it that compels people to act and think a certain way. But then when you put together all of the different harms, it, it's like it's, it's, it's almost too complicated for people to get their head around. And so when we challenge, let's say, this lockdown doctrine by saying, well, actually, when you think about trade-offs, there's a lot more harm to locking down society than there is, you know, benefit. People will say, well, how do you how do you weigh that? And so this framework was an attempt to, as you know, in as much detail as possible, come to terms with, well, what are those harms? You know, what's the full range of it, and what is the academic community, you know, what or the academic knowledge? Um, tell us about these harms. So on the one hand, type, right, type of harm, but then also the magnitude. And um, in that regard, I would say that the report has these sort of two elements to it. On the one hand, it's a story about the actual harms that took place in the real world, but it's filtered through the academic research that is available. And in some areas, we have very concrete statistics that are easy to appreciate, but in a lot of areas, we don't. Um, Yeah. Okay, so, okay, so uh, uh, I, I read the I report, read the report uh, and, and frankly, I have to say, Kevin, Kevin, it was depressing, depressing reading, reading uh, uh, in part yeah. because it was it, it some of what some of what was, was there was utterly predictable in, in advance. Right, like we could have known in advance, not, not in precise detail, but in a, in sort of a broad picture, what lockdowns would do to the poorest economies of the world. That was enti- you know you you end you end trade uh, yeah. globally. You're gonna uh, especially in, in, in a setting where the the world has essentially globalized the economy, meaning uh, lots of poor countries have reorganized their economy to better fit into the global economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you end trade uh, abruptly, you're going to disrupt those relationships, and a lot of poor people are going to lose their jobs. They're going to go hungry. And yeah. The UN issued report after report early in 2020 saying, warning about this. They're saying, right. saying look, 100 million people would be thrown into dire poverty. 130 million people were at risk of starvation, you know, dire food mm-hmm. insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think just to be constructive, why don't we go through the report? Yeah. You absolutely. divide up the, the harms into 10 different categories, health, yeah. the economy, Income, education, food security, lifestyle, relationship, community, environment, and governance. So let's go. Let's go through the report one by one, uh, yeah, just to so give some uh, so so that the, uh, the listeners can have a sense of the the scope 
of the effects of these lockdowns and what, what the scholarly literature is now saying about them. Uh, so why, why don't we start with health? I mean, lockdowns are supposed to protect health, right? That, that was, the, that was right. how they were sold. Uh, yeah. What is the scholarly literature saying about what effects they've had actually on health and not just on COVID, on health more broadly taken? Yeah, more broadly, right. So the, so the health category has a couple of sort of subcategories. So one is medical services, right? So the, the fact that when you create a lockdown, and it, so just to sort of take one step back here, right? It, it is difficult to, so we do have studies that very clearly have an association between a lockdown and harm. But in fact, it's quite difficult to like isolate that as a causative factor because we saw a lot of different elements here, right? And there was also this symbiotic relationship between media fear and a lockdown and sort of panic and behavioral change. And so there are studies that do very clearly show that association, but it's sort of, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging thing to isolate, right? Um, Overall, though, I think that yes, absolutely, the lockdowns are the are the major causative factor for like most of these harms. Um, Actually, you know, Kristen, maybe we should talk just very briefly about what you mean by lockdowns. I mean, it, it right. could it could just mean the, the what happened, what happened in, in early March or mid March twenty twenty, yes. the, the right. closure of businesses, schools, and et cetera, which did you know it it came back in some places, but wasn't as broadly applied. Yeah. It, but it could also mean more than just that. But what do you, what do you have in mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think about it as somewhat of a worldview, right, of maximizing the control of a respiratory virus in, and, and sort of that, that mentality that, that took over, let's say, the, the governing classes and the public for the, the better part of, you know, six months to two years, depending on what country you're in. Certainly the stay-at-home orders that started, you know, in Wuhan, China, and then that policy model spread through Italy and then the United States and the UK and, and globally, that's the conventional concept of the lockdown, which is, uh, which is kind of a crazy term when you actually take a step back and think, well, before COVID, what was a lockdown? Well, it was actually a, either you had a school shooting, uh, you had sort of a psychiatric ward that was going, you know, uh, berserk, or, or 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 sort of like you know some other national security threat that required everyone to actually physically lock themselves into their house. Um, it's not a term we want to use in public health. And in fact, before COVID, this was not something. If anyhow, that's a whole other subject to get into. Um, but I would say that that that. The, the actual like 150 countries that implemented the conventional idea of lockdown, it's really hard to go back from that, right? And so th this notion in that um, people who promoted zero COVID and sort of more of a maximist perspective that, oh, you can just have this short, really hard lockdown at the beginning and then you reopen. But that's not how politics work. Once you shut down, it's really hard to reopen politically. And that's what we saw. And so I actually, yeah, that's among many, I think, faulty um, forms of reasoning that the sort of maximist camp um, has, but anyhow, let's leave that aside for now. Right. So, so the, the point is that the lockdown then is not just simply one policy for two weeks. It's what it is 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 a suite of policies. Essentially, I, I always view it as a suite of policies aimed at uh, minimizing human interaction, physical human exactly. interaction. Yeah, at right? all costs, uh, as a sort of like a. Almost like a, a quasi um, religious value, right? That that the and and you're fighting against the t the statistics that are presented on the national news on a daily basis. And um, actually, one one term that I use in the report, and I'm going to be um, expanding on this idea, is COVIDization. And so that kind of gets the terms with sort of the issues that we're talking about. Okay, so okay, so, so we now we, okay, so now we know what we're talking about on in in the report. A lockdown is a suite of policies. Um, that, that last a long time, including school closures, including uh, uh, potentially business closures, including you know church, church, church uh, including recommendations right. of social distancing, basically telling people to view each other as biohazards. 
Right. Okay. So what, what now? Let's talk about the health. You you mentioned health, uh, the impact on health, and, and the impact on health services and medical services. What what yeah. impact did the lockdowns have on that? I mean, I remember early on, people were uh, staying home with heart attacks. Di- some of them. I mean, there were reports of people yeah. dying with heart attacks at home. Uh, people skipped cancer screening. Yeah. What does the scholarly literature say about this? Yeah, so we have two what are called meta-analyses on medical service reductions, and they they cover they cover the first six months of the pandemic, and they show about thirty to fifty percent, thirty to fifty percent reduction in medical services across the board. So that's outpatient, inpatient, no matter what it is, and and certainly some specialty services were more impacted than others, um, and people were obviously they were fearful to go into the medical system, but the medical system was also fearful to have patients there, and and you actually in the United States have a lot of accounts of empty hospitals, uh, but yet, you know, everyone's scared, right? Um, and obviously that has massive implications going forward in terms of cancer screening, heart disease uh, screening, diabetes treatment um, around the world. And I, I think that that's, um, we actually do have some really good studies showing that the harder you lock down, the more impact you had, for example, on um, cancer, uh, cancer treatments, right? And sort of a reduction and more poor outcomes from that. Um, and some other areas in terms of health are uh, is mental health, right? And that's a big, uh, complicated area. There's a lot of research. I would say it's one of the most researched areas where you have uh, meta-analyses and, and, and systematic reviews. But you have different forms of evidence that show uh, a different proportion of effect. So like um, longitudinal studies, um, point prevalence surveys, and then clinical-based uh, data, right? Uh, for example, eating disorders in the United States with kids went up quite drastically. Um, you know, psychiatric um, problems among among um, uh, younger uh, women who have kids, etc. Um, so, mental health is another uh, major area. And then, finally, in the health area, is the, the major question of excess mortality. Um, and actually, this is one area that I thought we would have better statistics on, and we actually don't really know what people. You know, die from in the world in a lot of countries. It's the the, the stats that we have are quite patchy, um, and I was surprised actually not not having better um, uh, let's say global a, gl- a global sense of what proportion of let's say the uh, you know f- um, seven to ten million excess deaths that occurred over these two years were caused by COVID and how much of them were caused by these disruptions and um, increases in of poverty and, and other societal effects. And and actually the yeah, I was thinking. Sorry, sorry yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's an excellent discussion. Um, I, I think the um, I, th- I think like one way to get at the excess mortality effect is by comparing places that had more you know sort of draconian uh, uh, intrusive right. policies compared to other places that are similar to to them uh, that didn't. Yeah. Right. So for, for instance, um, you know, where does Sweden fare on all cause excess deaths through the whole mortality uh, through yeah. the whole pandemic relative to its neighbors relative to Europe? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, it's it's much lower. Actually, the yes. Swedish Swedish experience suggests that yeah. the uh, the lockdown policies that many of the countries followed weren't necessary to protect human life because they had lower all cause excess deaths. Right. Uh, you know, where you don't have to worry about what was the exact cause. Uh, you know, Sweden, of course, had a lot of COVID deaths, but yeah, they avoided a lot of deaths from the, the policies themselves that didn't directly have to do with COVID, had more to do with the policies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Sweden is a great outlier, and I'm quite happy. Scientific, all scientists should be happy that Sweden conducted themselves in the way that it did because they provide this alternative, you know, uh, example. Um, you have other countries like Nicaragua, for example, in uh, Central America and Tanzania in, in Africa and other countries. and Actually, this is something that I think needs a lot more work on 
is comparing these countries that pursue different sorts of policies to their neighbors that are comparable. Um, and the Swedish example is just that, right? So you have in Sweden, you have a higher excess mortality at the very beginning of the pandemic compared to its neighbors. And of course, that's determined for the mainstream media, the whole narrative about Sweden, which is which is a very short vision of, of dealing with, you know, a new respiratory virus that's now making itself endemic, right? You got to take a longer, a longer view. And I think Sweden comes out, you know, close to top when, when you take that perspective. Yeah. So now if we should, before we move on to the next category, uh, we should talk a bit, since we're talking about excess mortality, we should talk about New Zealand and Australia. Um, and I've been following closely the excess mortality numbers in both of those countries. Um, and, you know, of course, they are often held up as examples of the success of a zero COVID policy. Um, uh, I'd love to hear your view, but let me let me just tell you what I, what, I, what I've seen there. Um, let's take the, the, the two countries separately. Uh, well, actually, take them, take them together first, and then separately. So for, first, I, I think it's important to, to remember that uh, COVID hit in uh, in the winter of 2020 in the north northern hemisphere, and in the summer of 2020 in the southern hemisphere. You know, March of 2020 is summer in the south southern hemisphere. Uh, uh, winter in the northern hemisphere, and so, and so if COVID has a as a uh, as a sort of seasonal predilection, it's toward winter. Uh, it was more ready to spread just based on the the, the season alone in the northern hemisphere than in the southern hemisphere. Uh, second, I think it's, I think it's really important to remember that the 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 both Australia and New Zealand are are examples of essentially island nations. Yeah, where, where you, you, you could potentially close off yourself from the rest of the world. I, if you look, if you look across, across the world, the world it's really it's island, island nations that did, you know, pretty well, well if they were going to go after well, zero COVID or if they, if they were, I mean, they just did really well, just period, because it was impossible to, to shut out the rest of the world for a while. Not forever, of course. Um, but then third, if you look at the excess mortality numbers in Australia, it's actually, it's actually kind of striking. Uh, sometime around mid 2021, uh, maybe late 2021, the all-cause excess, the cumulative all-cause excess deaths in Australia actually started equal Sweden and started to exceed it. And then when they find when uh, when uh, the and you know it, it, all through 2020 they were declaring victory with zero COVID, um, but they had lockdown after lockdown after lockdown. Yeah. And then, and then when they when opened, they opened up, up uh, the all-cause all -cause excess, excess deaths sort of rocketed, rocketed hot, hot, upward. I mean, that's, Australia, Australia actually has, has higher all-cause all excess deaths, deaths than Sweden does, does. through mm. the whole pandemic. Um, New Zealand, on the other hand, has roughly, has, is, is actually slightly lower all-cause excess deaths than Sweden. Um, they actually had to open up finally in 2022. But, they, but their lockdowns were actually lighter in, in many ways than the Australian lockdowns. Mm. So, it, so I'm not, I'm, I, I, a lot of people will talk about excess deaths and they'll point to these island nations as examples yeah. of, of, uh, of how zero COVID might have worked. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think? So um, let me jump to North America, actually. I mean, so, so, and I just want to provide some stats. And of course, this is filtered through like the, the complexities of this type of research, right? But we have, North America is the only continent that we can actually estimate the percentage of non-COVID excess mortality. Because you have study, you have good studies from Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, and essentially it's it's twenty percent. So twenty percent of the excess mortality was because of non-COVID causes, according to the studies that I cite in the report. But 
you know, if it, it, when you go by, you know, and you parcel that out by age group, for people under 45 years old, 70% of the excess mortality was non-COVID causes. So there's an age change there, right? And which mm. percolates throughout the whole conversation about COVID, where the, you know, the people who are older um, benefit the most from these extreme measures, whereas the younger people and poorer people suffer the most. And, and so we have this sort of intergenerational value judgment that's being imposed onto society um, in, in very strange can, ways. Can I ask you about that, Kevin? So like even, like, even, even for someone who's older, I mean, of course, yeah, of course I've, been, I've been an advocate for focused protection for older people, mainly because right. of the high risk imposed on older people from COVID, COVID infection. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but even for older people, uh, Avoiding COVID by itself, if if it you know if it you know, even if it reduces mortality overall, which I'm not I'm not entirely convinced. I have to say from the literature, right? Um, but is that is that sufficient to say that they benefit? Right. So, for instance, you know, there we're going to talk yeah. extensively in the report about other other kinds of outcomes that are actually quite important to life that don't yeah. have d- directly have to do with living or dying. Yeah. Um, so, so by itself, I mean, you're talking about what you're talking about is is about uh, o- older people benefiting by not dying from COVID. That's what you right. mean, right? Yes, right. Yeah, and that, so that re- reminds me of one study actually that's in the I think it's the relationship section. It was a qualitative study with older people from the UK and Colombia, and a lot of old people were pretty upset. of the way that society was viewing them as these vulnerable people that all needed to be kind of shoved off to the side and locked into their rooms for like the next two years. And it's called essentialism, right? You say like everyone who's over 70 is vulnerable and hence you should all just, you know, basically be locked up from society. Whereas a lot of older people don't want to do that. Um, they're at the end yeah. of their life. They're also very healthy. They want to socialize. They want to go outside and enjoy themselves. They don't want to be treated like a biohazard or this vulnerable victim. And so, you know, and this kind of gets to one of the major problems of the whole response is this essentialism, right? And sort of um, dictates from on high that everyone is uh, needs to fit into fit their life into a mold um, rather than make their own decisions for themselves given their circumstances. Okay. So uh, let's move to the second category, which yeah. is e- the e- economy. So the, what impact did these, this lockdown philosophy and, and policy paradigm have on the, e- the economic outcomes of the world through yeah. the pandemic? So, I mean, there's a lot to say here. Um, one of the interesting things in terms of GDP uh, is that you had this sort of rapid U-turn shift, right? So you have this drop in GDP by about 4% globally uh, very quickly in 2020, and then it increases actually to a higher degree than pre, pre, uh, pre-pandemic in, in 2021 because the, the global economy is picking up and there's a lot of business opportunities, let's say, during that. But it, the recovery is fundamentally unequal. So those who had more gained more and those who had less lost less. And that's also seen in, in the stats around income and, and sort of the labor markets where you have this growth. call that a K-shaped, K-shaped recovery, right? So right. the rich got very, 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 yeah. very rich. The poor yeah. really sort of never really recovered, even got worse. Yes, and some of the uh, estimates from you know the UN is that you know, the billionaires gained what is it four four oh, sorry six billion dollars, and the sort of the lower um, uh, socioeconomic groups in the labor market lost four trillion dollars. So it's a, it's a wealth transfer essentially. You can you can view it that way, and I think it was in many regards it was that. Um, you have lots lots of disruptions to trade markets. You know maritime trade, trade ports. Um, because uh, if you're a company, you're going to 
prioritize the most lucrative markets. And so a, a lot of shipping didn't go to uh, you know non-lucrative markets, and uh, those countries lost out in this sort of global supply chain. So that's just one sort of uh, fact. Of course, the the debate around inflation is is ongoing, and I'm quite uh, I've been very surprised about how reluctant economists have been to tie the inflation that we've seen over the last couple of years to lockdown. I mean, I, I'm not an inflation specialist, but I, I did try to really dig into that in the literature. Um, and I was quite surprised about like the lack of focus around that issue. Yeah, uh, maybe I mean, you, maybe it, you can sort of speak more to that. <laughs> Actually, uh, my my colleague in, in, in Canada, Miko Pakalin, is an economist at the University of of uh, of uh, uh, of Waterloo, and I wrote some pieces about this. Also surprised at the lack of, of focus of economists on the the, the the clear implication of what lockdowns were likely to have on inflation, hmm. because a lot of the lockdown policies, in order to soften the blow on the economy, uh, what governments around the world did is they financed it with borrowing and and and, yeah. and, and printing of money, like at, at a scale that's basically unprecedented outside of wartime. Yeah. Um, the 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 implication of those kinds of policies that, that, that economists have, have documented for for you know years before that is is that it's going to put inflationary pressure on the on 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 the countries that engage in those policies, hmm. um, and you know it's not it's not surprising right if you if you're sort of spending outside of your means um, yeah. you're, some, it's not like you you can just conjure up a free lunch mm -hmm. um, and, and you know a lot, a lot, I mean, I'm not let's we, we can talk about what the necessity of those policies and, and maybe some of the the, the the unintended consequences of those policies but like basically the idea that but, but but those policies in a sense they were justified based on well we're destroying the economies of the of, the, of, the, of our country we yeah. have to somehow soften the blow on, right. on small businesses and others yeah. uh, so, so we, we have we put in place these these uh, essentially these these policies that borrow from the future or print money mm -hmm. from uh, in order to find to finance them yeah inflation, inflation is the obvious consequence of it now yeah. how it plays itself out and it depends partly on how it the the inflationary inflation. pressures are managed by different countries uh, <laughs> in particular by the united states because the united states plays a sort of a leading role worldwide in this yeah um, and uh you know, of course and of course as we've seen over the last the last, uh, last couple of years, is was we had fairly high, uh, fairly high inflationary pressure uh, by by modern standards. I mean, I think probably the last uh, large scale inflationary pressure of this of this of this type was might might you have to go back to the nineteen seventies or something. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, the consequences of that, I think, are, are tremendous because uh, it's you know the ri rising. Prices are not even, uh, and no. the impact of them are not evenly distributed. It's again yeah. the poor that face the worst consequences of it. Um, and so, so I was, I was, I was really, really, it was really interesting to read your summary of the literature, of the literature and, mm. and how uncertain it was, mm -hmm. uh, and how sort of uh, uh, how little attention has been paid to it. Uh, you know, economists, I guess, uh, especially the academic economists, tend to be slow in getting to these things. I, I anticipate seeing more attention to this over the next few years. Okay, no, that's great to know. And the the stats from the let's say the World Bank is that um, global, well, so connected to to inflation and the economy is the question of debt, right? So we printed tons of money. Um, one interesting sort of factoid um, when we're thinking about well, what was the pandemic, right? Is actually where that money went. So the the International Monetary Fund has the best tracker on you know how governments spent their money during COVID. And it goes up until September, 2021, and it tracks $18 trillion, right, of spending. Now, 5% of that spending went to the health sector. 
So you have a pandemic and you spend $17 trillion, but only 5% of that is going to medical services, right? So hmm. the whole idea that the pandemic was, uh, you know, this medical event, that doesn't make sense when you're actually looking at the budget lines. It was about uh, keeping the economy afloat for what? Because we were making humans into biohazards and, and stopping normal transactions and normal social and economic life. Um, and of course, that increased debt a lot by 30%, actually, according to the World Bank, which is comparable to the Second World War. Um, and, and what's the consequence of that debt? So you print money, you get inflation, you get debt. Well, the studies actually um, in 2022 are showing that uh, governments predominantly in the global south are now cutting education, health, and social protection services. So the long-term consequences of, of, of this sort of spending spree is less money to invest in social services. And that's going to be... Austerity. Exactly. So, and, and the World Bank and the, the IMF have reports from the 20, from 2022 where they're saying, you know, is the 2000, sorry, 2020s going to be another lost decade like the 1980s was for Latin America and Africa, um, where you have massive austerity, uh, social unrest, and you, you have these sort of social development indicators that just spiral downwards. And it's very possible. Uh, it doesn't seem like the world is getting any more stable. Um, <laughs> and so we might look back and see lockdown as a sort of defining moment that cr created this sort of precipice. And I think that's going to be, I hope it doesn't happen, but it would be a very tragic sort of story. Okay. okay. Third, 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 third category is income. Uh, so what, right. what is the scholarly literature saying on that? I have to say, I read this and I'm depressed and I'd love to, uh, let's, yeah. let's tell, you can tell the audience, right. I'll let you tell the audience about why I should be depressed. Yeah. Well, don't be depressed, but, um, I'm going to start, I'm going to start with one, with one good global stat. And this is from, I forget which UN agency it was, but it's the best estimate that we have about the labor markets and how many people in the world can actually stay home. So let's say tomorrow there's another outbreak and, and you know, the, the, uh, our governments around the world say, everyone's going to stay home. It's 17% of the world. So that's about 500 million people actually have the capacity to stay home. So you could say like lockdown was a policy for this 17% of people of which me and, you know, yourself are part of, um, sorry, what were you going to say? I mean, I, I, that's why I call it, uh, it's, it's focus protection of the laptop class. Right. That's what lockdowns are or, or trickle down epidemiology. The idea is that if those 17% can be protected, then everyone will be protected. That's, right. that's essentially the, the ideology of the lockdown. Yeah. And there's actually a good amount of, of studies showing that during the lockdown period, people in uh, or neighborhoods with lower socioeconomic status saw much higher infection rates. So this is actually backed up by, uh, I think, a good deal of social epidemiological research. Um, so, okay, so the, you have this 17% sort of issue. And, and I think that really gets to the way... Well, anyhow, I don't want to get into the sort of the way that oh, policy well, I mean, was constructed. I, I, you know, but... Kevin, I, thought, I remember in Jul I think it was July or August 2020, a, a friend of mine at New York Chicago, Anup Milani, ran a, a study, a seroprevalence study, measuring antibodies in the population of in Mumbai. You know, a, a very, very unequal city, a, a huge city in, in, in India with tremendous inequality, a, you know, huge yeah. slums, but also a lot of very, very rich people. Um, and what he found was that the, the in, this is in mid-2020, mid that there was something like 70% seroprevalence. That means 70% of the, of the population of the slums had already had, had COVID, yeah. um, whereas it was 20% in the rest of the, the, rest of the city. It's just, right. you know, like it's, it's, it, you see that 17% uh, number play itself out in statistics like that. 
Yeah. The lockdowns were very, very focused. If it was going to protect anyone, it was going to be protect the richest people who could uh, who could support themselves uh, while the rest of the country, uh, the rest of the world, locked themselves out and that didn't lose their jobs and so on. Yeah, and that, and that doesn't even get into all of the other um, health and social characteristics that actually impact risk, right? So, like, you know, why, for example, I, I've worked in Haiti for many years, and I wrote one, a paper on um, qualitative research during lockdown from Haiti, and. You know, Haiti did not see a large mortality rate from COVID. Well, why is that? There's a lot of different hypotheses. One of them, which I think is quite interesting, is exposure to other related coronaviruses that would create a population immunity response in these countries. Um, but anyhow, that's sort of, let's get back to income. So um, you're asking me about depressing statistics, right? So you have this sort of stat around, okay, who can stay home? Then what happened to, you know, those people who could not stay home? And, and the, 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 the data around global poverty is very sobering. And again, we have like these different estimates, um, you know, from 100 million to 400 million people being uh, sort of thrown or, 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 or demoted or, you know, their poverty rates increasing to a level which is, you know, you're really suffering. Um, so that's extreme poverty, which is lower than $2 a day, but also other poverty lines in different countries. And of course, like, if you look at the relationship between losing income and falling between below those poverty lines and sort of like the long-term consequences for a family, they're drastic. Um, and, you know, that's a lot of people. And actually the, the World Bank, which kind of maintains the best estimates of this, the data from 2022 was the same as 2020. So those poverty rates have not improved over the last three, three to four years. Um, and I mean, just, uh, just to like, I wanted to tell a story about this because I mean, it's just because it's easy to like look at the numbers and your mind goes numb. Two dollars right. a day. I mean, almost unimaginable what that actually means. Um, but like, there are reports. That, I saw a report out of the again out of the UN uh, talking about uh, uh, trafficking of children, right? Sexual trafficking of children. Yeah. And the question is like, why would a parent send their child into sexual trafficking or, or ch put their children into child labor? Yeah. If like think about what poverty actually does to a family. Yeah. Right? They they have to choose. The parents sometimes have to choose between doing this unimaginable yeah. thing to their child or having their child starve mm. and die. I mean, I think that is the kind of bind when you talk about extreme poverty that we placed people in. Yeah. You know, as, as a consequence of these of these these lockdown policies, and we just yeah. and we thought about the, the the maybe the seventeen percent, but we didn't think about the the, the eighty three, where yeah. uh, where those kinds of policies, especially the the poorest of the poor, <laughs> were going to be placed in unimaginable, morally untenable situations because of the economic dep uh, uh, deprivation. Yeah, and I mean, if you think about a family, let's say you have six kids, right, and and um, you have some pretty important life decisions to make for your kids, let's say in 2020, 2021, 2022, right? Are you going to send them to school? Or are you not? Are you going to help them build a business or not? And so these, these reductions of income are going to affect the life course for hundreds of millions of people. And not just the poorest of the poor, but even like there's a really good study actually out of Uganda. And this is one of the only studies that look at the longitudinal effects, you know, on income. And it shows that People in the middle class in Uganda, shopkeepers, right? Their income was actually the most drastically affected, even more than the poorest of the poor, because they relied on their savings to, to man their shops and to have this investment cycle, right? And these are like, they're petty traders, but they were not able to recover their income, you know, two years after the sort of original lockdown. And so there's all these sort of more nuanced effects depending on class and sort of your needs for cash flow that, that um, also need to be taken into account. But yeah. Okay. okay. Um, 
let's, let's, let's move, move on, on to the third, the fourth category, which is uh, education. Yes, right. Another, so another, you, you've hinted at this already. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, some places close schools for a, a, a very long time. Like Uganda, I think, had its schools closed for two full years. And you know, a lot yeah, of that is not Zoom. There's no Zoom school. There's just no yeah. school. Um, you know, in in richer countries like the U.S., places like California, my children did not see the inside of a classroom for a full year and a half. Yeah. Um, or, you know, my younger children, and and uh, and it, and and uh, that the um, the in the Philippines, what I understand, what happened is yes. the children didn't even leave their house for two years. Yeah. Yeah. We're not allowed to leave their house for two years. Yeah. So, t- so tell us about what the literature is now saying about this. Just insane. I mean, school closures and how long they went on. And, um, you know, UNICEF was advocating for opening schools relatively early. And so it's it's quite interesting how a major UN organization for kids was saying this, and yet it, it wasn't percolating down to certain national governments like in Uganda, which continues to baffle my mind. I've, I've probably spent about a year and a half to two years of my life in Uganda, and I still don't understand quite what happened there with the school closures because it just doesn't make any sense. Um, the studies around learning loss are very alarming, right? And so that's um, uh, looking at standardized test scores. Um, most of the research is from higher income countries, but even there, like for, there's a great study from the Netherlands where everyone's connected to the internet and they, sh- it's a, it's a study published in PNAS, right? So top, top journal in the U S um, and, it's, the National Academy of Sciences, yeah, and but- it's like, it's like a four week school closure, I think four to six weeks. And they show that just that small interruption was drastic. It had like long-term, you know, consequences for this, for this, for the learning for that year. So when you think about two years, um, there's also another good study from Bangladesh that shows actually when you close schools for, I think it was a year and a half in Bangladesh or something, the actual learning loss is more because students will forget the things that they learned the year before you had the, the school closure, right? And so there's all these issues around measurements. Um, there's, I think the, you know, just to throw out sort of a stat, an estimate from UNICEF is that um, the consequences of school closures around the world is could lead to up to $21 trillion of lost learning for this generation of, of students. And, and UNICEF calls it the largest intergenerational um, you know, crisis uh, uh, children have ever faced since the Second World War. Um, and, and those outcomes are like largest in poorer countries where especially younger um, or sort of teenage girls, a lot of them dropped out, right? If you're 14, 15, 16, or even also the boys as well. So you have large dropout rates as well. Um, and um, I think there was, the estimate was 24 million students would drop out. Um, we don't actually have any studies like saying whether that was more or less, which I thought was kind of surprising. Um, so yeah, learning loss, loss potential. And, and, and the thing about school closures is that we, there's this, great review uh, published in Lancet in April 2020 saying schools might contribute two to four percent of COVID like cases, right? Like don't close schools. And even if I, I don't even, it might be even less than that, depending on, you know, the school. So there was enough evidence at the time to say, don't close schools. Um, and, but we did, and now we have these consequences. I mean, I, I, again, I was tracking Sweden in 2020, early 2020, and the Swedish experience is instructive. Like they didn't close schools for anyone under age 16. I think it was 16 and under. Everyone just went to school. No, yeah. just no, like normal school. They had no social distancing, no masks, n- nothing, just school um, for those kids. And not one child died, I think, in spring of 2020. And there's a, 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 a pediatrician in Sweden who 
published a study in the New England Journal of Medicine where he documented that uh, that essentially the, the the teachers in those schools actually had uh, COVID at lower rates than the, the rest of the working population. Right. That in fact, being around kids somehow was protective yeah. uh, of, of, of getting COVID uh, yeah. in, in 2020. Uh, it's, you know, it's just a, it's a striking finding. We had that result in early 2020, in like by mid-2020, we had that result. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of countries opened, opened their schools on the basis, a lot of European countries opened their right. schools on that basis. And yet the message didn't get out. The schools can still continue to stay closed long after it was clear that it wasn't necessary to close them in order to protect people against getting COVID. Um, uh, one, one other note about this. I remember there was another, uh, there was a study published by uh, a friend of mine who's the head editor of JAMA Pediatrics uh, mm-hmm. named Dimitri Kostakis. It was like mid-2020. Mm-hmm. And what he did is he looked at the school closures in spring of 2020 and asked what would be the consequences for the health and well-being of children as a uh, from the from the learning loss and yeah. he, was, he was basically building this off of a of a literature sure. that's uh, fairly prominent in health economics uh, where the the idea was, was as, of the literature is like you know you just, here's here's the kind of natural experiment that people know will do. Like there's this woman, uh, this fantastic scholar named Adriana Laris Mooney who, who did this a study like this. Um, she compared a, a school district in one state that had just increased the age of required use of schooling, like in the say like the 40s or 50s or 30s or whatever, from age 15 to 16, and then compared it to a neighboring district that d- didn't raise the eight years of schooling. And then she just looked before versus after. Uh, the kids, kids that were exposed to the 16 years versus the kids that were exposed to the 15-year requirement, and then followed them for decades. And it turns out that just that one extra year of required schooling has enormous benefits to the children in terms of long-term positive health consequences. They're less likely to be poor, they're less likely to have chronic disease, and they're less likely to die early. Yeah. So it's not just learning loss. It's like we've, we've essentially consigned children to a lifetime of, of worse uh, 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 more likely to be like more, more you know, worse poverty, worse uh, health health outcomes, and and shorter life expectancy as a consequence of this very short sighted decision. Yeah, and and like the the term for that concept, as you well know, Jay, is the social determinants of health. Which oddly enough, a lot of the people cheering for harder COVID restrictions were authors of papers describing the long-term effects of things like school closures or comparable effects of poverty rates, right? And, and I always found that cognitive distance just so striking, right? That you could go back and see somebody advocating for school closures or, or lockdowns and whatnot, and you could maybe point to a paper that they wrote 10 years ago that would contradict their, their position, but anyhow. <laughs> okay. Uh, Fifth category, category, food security, which is, which is a fancy term for far, uh, fancy yeah. scholarly term for starvation. Yeah, well, more than that, it's also food systems. Um, and so like the distribution of food, access to food, nutrition, um, but certainly like it is also hunger, dire hunger. And um, so like um, the best stat that we have from a, a UN report called the state of food around the world is that um, 350 million more people fell into food insecurity um, between 2019 and 2022. Um, so that's a lot of people. It, it tracks with the poverty, with the you know the increase in, in dire poverty actually. So pretty hun- well, hundreds of millions of people. Yeah, you're saying. Th- yeah, three fifty. 
Um, wow. And now the thing about that, which is interesting, getting back to the earlier comment about attribution, is that food insecurity was increasing before COVID. So there's one really good study published, I think, in Agricultural Economics or some such uh, journal where, where the author estimate tries to estimate like what proportion of that is just due to the lockdowns. And they come up with 60% is the sort of like estimate that they have. Um, and you know you can you can quib about that and whatnot, but it's it's a large well, portion. We're still talking hundreds of millions yeah. of people that were put into into a situation where they didn't couldn't get enough enough to eat for extended periods of time yeah. because of the lockdowns. Yeah, and um, you know that's I mean it's it was it was frightening. Also um, at the at the time there was all sorts of. Um, concerns about like a serious global malnutrition crisis, like, you know, famine. And I think that um, a future lesson is that like, if the world actually locks down really hard for a very long time, famine and conditions are, you know, should be anticipated. Luckily, because a lot of people were quite creative in the global South also about these lockdowns, depending on what country you were in, you could try to circumvent them with, you know, by by not following the rules, Um, which actually, so Ironically enough, not following the rules could actually be good for your health in many circumstances, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you, I mean, I agree with that. That's, I, I, you know, I, I often live by that in my own life, Kevin. Just, <laughs> yeah, not tell anyone else about that. Um, but, 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 uh, but, but uh, yeah, I don't know if you tracked what was happening in Peru uh, around this uh, in 2020. I mean, it's one of the most sharply yeah. locked down countries right. in the world. Uh, huge, huge amounts of poverty. Uh, and I, you know, like the, the, that food insecurity for the poorest in Peru actually looked like they were, I mean, I was really, really uh, shocked by the numbers I saw. I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly what they were in tw- out of 2020, yeah. but like the, the sh- more sharp the lockdown, the less, uh, the, 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 the bigger the effect on food insecurity, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, to, to, an, to an extent where you're absolutely right. If they, if they, if you, uh, if you tried to skip the rules, you actually might end up doing better for your health. Yeah, absolutely. And the, so the, there's an interesting thing about Peru and also Sri, Sri Lanka. And I think there's a couple of other countries, but I forget their names. They imposed political lockdowns after COVID lockdowns, right? So there was unrest in Peru, there was unrest, uh, unrest in Sri Lanka, and the government said, everyone's going to stay home. It's a lockdown like COVID. And and that's a really alarming thing that we've empowered these governments to have this authority, right? And that's like a political consequence that's going to go into the future. Um, but um, yeah, I think the other thing to say about food security actually is that we, we don't have like a meta-analysis around nutrition. So we know that nutritional standards decreased for infants, for example, which can have all sorts of effects on stunting, brain development, and other things. Um, but, but there isn't like a great sense on what proportion of infants suffered be, from malnutrition because of this in, decrease in food insecurity, et cetera. So um, yeah, that was, that was one kind of hole in the evidence base. Okay, okay, so, so the, next the next category, category is lifestyle. lifestyle, and in this category, category you include things like exercise, exercise sleep, yeah. diet, addiction, yeah. drug use, obesity, yeah. uh, so, so, uh, child, child and child development. Yeah. Uh, so tell what is what is, what is the literature is saying about the impact of these policies on those outcomes? Yeah. So I would say um, one of the more worrying one is there's a so this is from a meta analysis on obesity rates, estimating uh, a one percent increase in children and a. 2% increase in adults in global obesity rates, right? So that's a lot. That's a pretty significant increase when you think about the consequences of obesity. Um, people became much more addicted to screens. Screen use increased by 50% among children. Um, and, and those screen addiction habits have 
kind of continued, right? We're living in this sort of era where if you watch kids, um, they're all staring at their phones and COVID encouraged them to stare at their phones longer. And I think that that's, that is going to have astronomical cultural and um, psychological impacts going forward. It was something that we're already struggling with as a society, but we said, okay, everyone's, you know, don't go meet your, your friends at the park, which was already decreasing because how many people actually go to the park and know their neighbors. And if you go to the park, you watch the parents sitting on their phones while their kids are playing. Anyhow, I could rant about that for a long time. Um, I actually don't own a cell phone. Well, anyhow, I don't own a cell phone. You um, don't own a cell phone. Okay. No, I did not know because that. of these okay. effects. Yeah. I, I kind of just, Got rid of it a while ago. Um, so screen addiction, you know, sleep problems, all sorts of interesting studies, actually, even about dream interruption. There's actually a whole sort of niche area of COVID and dreams, which is quite interesting. Obviously, exercise decreased, and exercise has all sorts of beneficial effects for health. Um, um, frailty increased among the elderly, right? So, okay, we want to protect the elderly. Okay, so Let's, let's isolate you, but then what's the consequences of that? Well, increases in uh, muscular disorders, uh, skeleton you know, problems with bone development, uh, you know, uh, dementia increases. Um, and sort of one of the, the more striking one is actually about child development. So we heard a lot about this in the media, but the, actual, the, the data that we have does show you know, negative consequences on um, um, uh, physical and cognitive development for infants born during the COVID lockdown period. And um, you know, there's a lot of different hypotheses around how well, about the causes, but also how severe that is. Um, and one of them is um, uh, maternal stress, right? So moms being really stressed out and then giving birth to children uh, with those stress hormones. And, and the sort of consequences of that, um, and I think we're we're also we're we're also seeing that in the school systems as kids go into preschool and sort of the early grades, um, some of them have you know difficulties uh, learning, difficulties with interpersonal skills, um, and uh, yeah, I mean that's those are really tragic studies actually that are that are in the report. You can read them yourself. Um, what did you think about uh, the, uh, the the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a statement, uh, I think in like 2021, 2022, uh, saying that masking children had no effect on their, uh, on their child, on, on their, on their development. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, that struck me as like so far beyond the evidence that, that it was yeah. just deeply irresponsible to tell parents that. It's more than deeply irresponsible. It's, 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 it's an, it's a mental um, framework that just inverts reality. So you don't assume, oh, well, you know, we don't, we don't mask ourselves, right? So in, a, in a sort of the evolution of humans is we don't wear masks. So if we're going to introduce masks, we should assume that we evolved without masks because that was beneficial. And so if you're going to impose something, well, you should be cautious about it. It's called bio, a bioconservative position. Uh, it's a value judgment that you don't impose technologies or changes, or you do so with some caution and skepticism about their potential negative consequences. And so you kind of saw that throughout the COVID sort of um, years. But yeah, absolutely. The mass debate became very polarizing and very strange. And um, you had institutions um, sort of throw their credibility out the window in many regards, um, because other societies were not masking toddlers in New York, you know, as New York city, for example. Um, I mean, there was just, you, you see recommended a scale yeah, for the exactly. all, all, all American parents. 
Uh, whereas like the European CDC, the ECDC said no, no masks under 12. Even the World yes. Health Organization said no masks under six. Um, yeah. I, I had no idea what the literature, uh, the uh, the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics was, was relying on when they made, made such a confident statement yeah, about masking. Yeah. I, so uh, kind of a funny story. I was invited to the European Centers for Disease Control like about a year and a half ago. They had a conference on COVID. So you had the heads of like all of the Scandinavian countries and a bunch of other European countries. And and they, they asked me, they said, what's going on with you Americans and masking children? And, and these were like the top, you know, top epidemiologists in Europe. And, and they just could not understand why the American, you know, the Democratic Party and uh, in the United States just were willing to die on this hill. And in fact, a lot of them expressed just general skepticism about the effectiveness of masks, um, saying, yeah, the evidence is kind of weak, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you have these more candid conversations. But yeah, in the U.S., it was it was sort of akin to more well, virtue. Know, I, I, I share the befuddlement. I still can't. I, I still can't wrap my mind around it. Uh, what, what what people were looking at? What I mean, I, I'm I'm tracking the literature as closely as I can, and and I didn't see any evidence that would warrant the kind of certainty that people had about the necessity right. of masking or the lack of harms that they that they might impose on certain populations. Yeah, I mean, there's a simple explanation for that, which is you feel like it should work. <laughs> right. I mean, literally, right. You, you feel it. So I think that um, that's probably a good explanation. Okay. okay. Next, Next category, category relationships. relationships. And in this category, you include child abuse, uh, domestic violence, uh, uh, you know, fertility. Yeah. What, what, what's, what's the literature saying on that? Yeah. So child abuse and domestic violence went up. Um, by how much? We're not completely sure, but it's in the millions of cases, um, which is, again, like a long term you know, uh, consequence to people's lives. Um, families were really disruptive because of the mental health consequences, um, uh, sort of stress on marriages. Um, we don't actually have good stats on, you know, whether that increased or decreased divorce, for example. Um, um, we obviously, there was a disruption to marriage rates, you know, during COVID because you couldn't get married. Um, fertility, a lot of people stopped having sex because um, of the stress probably and the the lack of interpersonal um, sort of the ability to go out. I, mean, I, I remember there was like some talk early in the pandemic about uh, there's going to be a, lot, a huge spate of lockdown babies. And that, of course, the opposite happened. Yeah, it seems like the lo- the opposite happened. So there's a couple of good studies like looking at fertility rates and uh, mostly in Europe um, showing this dip, two, two kind of dips around uh, that are correlated to like the lockdown period um, where you just have less babies being born. And I think that probably has somewhat to do with people's concerns about the economic consequences, right? Um, because if you're if you're you're not you're you're uncertain about your job prospects, you're going to think, well, maybe we should delay having this baby or whatnot um, into the future. But I think those did rebound quite quickly. So I don't know like how much of a long term consequence that's going to have. Uh, before we leave this category, I just want to make one note about the the child abuse. Uh, it was entirely predictable, right? A lot of what happens yeah. with child abuse is that it's picked up in schools, like it's teachers right. or or aides that that look and see, okay, what's the word this bruise come from, and they, yeah. they that induces an investigation, right, and uh, and an intervention. Yeah, essentially, those support systems were entirely stopped during yeah. the pandemic. So children, there was no chance of children that child yes. abuse being picked up, and so it yeah. happened with absolutely no possibility of intervention yeah. by, by, uh, by, by, you know, adults to, to, to protect yeah. children who were subject to it. Yeah. And actually there's some good qualitative studies. So interview studies on social protection agencies, and then also people dealing with the homeless or um, domestic violence um, victims. 
and just the sort of agony that they went through knowing that, hey, there's these vulnerable people in the community. And yet our organization is telling us we can't take care of them. We can't go to their house. We can't go check on them. Um, or, you know, we have to abide by these COVID rules, which inhibit people's, you know, willingness to come seek care from us, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, those, those studies are quite heart-wrenching about, uh, you know, people who are in positions of um, this, you know, social protection. They want to care for these vulnerable individuals, and they feel like the health regulations are preventing them from doing that. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, uh, next, next category, category is the eight, I think the seventh and eighth category. Yeah. Uh, community. So, so, so social, social networks, networks stigma, stigma, crime, uh, mass protests, and elections. Uh, sort of a grab bag. Well, tell, yeah. what is, uh, so like, there's a lot here. Um, yeah, there is. What are the highlights? Yeah. So the, I think um, you can judge from like the, the length of the conversation, right? You're like, whoa, another, th- another category of harm, right? <laughs> and I think this is, this is the point is when you, when you tell, when you disrupt society to this degree, you're disrupting a lot of stuff that you don't even anticipate, right? Um, and so this, this category um, is probably, and the other sort of three, there's a three that are left, we have the less, the, the least amount of like meta analysis statistics to say, oh, there was a global increase or a decrease here and there because of just the nature of the data collection systems. But you certainly have like, you know, 60% of countries delayed elections. So that's one stat that you can throw out there. And, you know, that, that has consequences, delaying elections. Um, there were there was a sort of 13% increase in protests around the world during COVID, and a lot of those were against the COVID policies and and trying to you know um, trying to get elected politicians to to change course and to consider the harms. Well, one, one of the one of the things that struck me is that uh, there, there were fewer of those than I anticipated. Yeah. Um, but al- but also that, that that there were protests not about lockdowns that seemed to me at least partly sort of sublimated uh, uh, angst and unhappiness over the lockdowns pushed into other more socially acceptable areas of protest. Mm-hmm. Right. So you might, you might think about uh, uh, protests against the George Floyd uh, murder, which was actually, you know, I, I mean, I, I thought that was quite yeah. reasonable that people were quite upset about it. Um, but at, this, at the same time, the, 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 uh, a lot of those young people that were protesting weren't allowed to protest about the lockdowns. I mean, in fact, they were thought, uh, they thought of, the, of, of the, the way the public health messaging worked, young people were told that, that if you protested against lockdowns, you were unempathic. You, were, you didn't care about grandma. Yeah. Um, and yet, it's, it's the lives of young peoples that were most disrupted unnecessarily by the lockdowns in the sense of like they're, they yeah. were harmed and they faced the least risk from COVID. Yeah. And there, there's some, so like the, one question is what proportion of the population were willing to protest against like lockdowns and other COVID measures? And it's not as much as you would think. So there's a, a couple of good studies in Europe, particularly in Germany, where they show it's about you know, like 10% of people went to an anti-lockdown protest and like 20 or 25% had sympathies for that. And it's similar, I mean, actually, I think, I think there's that, a... That's, that's sur- really important. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Kevin, go ahead. Uh, similar to like a, um, a large survey in the UK that was done about a year ago, which found about 27% of people said that lockdown was the, you know, a bad or a, a wrong sort of course to take. So in general, like in, in the wealthy North, like it's still a minority opinion that this course of action was ultimately like counterproductive and harmful. And I think that that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah no, I, I do. I, I agree I, with you about that. And I was struck by that as uh, in, in 2020, that the, that the, that the lockdowns were broadly popular. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's hard to come to terms with, with with the opinion that I have, but it's just a fact, right? That, that they yeah. were broadly popular, but there was a substantial minority of people that that were deeply opposed to them enough to like right. you know violate. And it's and I, the question is why they were broadly popular. P- partly, it's because um, public health messaging and along with the media has a tremendous influence on how people think about yes. this. Yeah, and especially when the messaging is, if you don't comply with these lockdown orders, you are uh, putting your grandma in danger. Yeah. That's a tremendously powerful way of controlling opinion. Yeah, and there's actually a great paper that I cite in this section on community. I think in the protest section from Canada, um, they use the term moral panic. So in a moral panic, you you separate the population into the virtuous, so the, the rule followers, and then the deviants who are worthy of, uh, they're kind of sub, somewhat subhuman, um, or, or you use them to scapegoat, right? And so they're the problem. They're the, they're the cause. If only they, they, you know, everyone would just comply, COVID would go away. I mean, you had this, this rhetoric during the pandemic, right? Um, and, and that was very alarming. And that's actually part of the discussion around stigma was you know, this idea that you were policing your neighbor effectively. Uh, and you had this dominant sort of social or herd mentality that emerged that was very corrosive, I think, to, to public discourse as well. Because I think um, certainly in the universities, if you raised your head above the fray, you were quickly chopped down. Um, and to, get, so, to give one example, um, I wrote a, I've written a couple of papers on the vaccine mandates as a, as a sort of policy. And I was with a, with a group of my co-authors, we were the first ones to have a debate about the vaccine mandates, um, to my knowledge, in North America. And this was like the middle or sort of the end of 2021, um, even though all the universities in North America imposed these vaccine mandates. Um, there was very little debate about them. And I think the same could be said for lockdown and other non-pharmaceutical interventions, too. Actually, I wrote uh, with uh, a philosopher at uh, at Oxford named uh, Alberto Giublini, who uh, right. uh, is, is part of Collateral Global. He yeah. and I had a debate over the over over the vaccine mandates in I think late spring 2021. A written debate. You can still go see it. Uh, right. Um, it's it, it's interesting. Yeah, it struck me too. There was really there wasn't as much debate as there kind of ought, ought to have been. Before mm-hmm. we leave this section, Kevin, I wanted to like do. There's one other really interesting part of this, and you uh, that you had uh, where you talked about trust. Yeah, uh, trust in institutions. Tell us about that. Yeah, so trust is one of those things that things that's hard to measure actually, and we don't have great standardized like metrics around how do you measure trust increasing or decreasing. But in in general, like the studies that are out there show this kind of original increase in trust of governments and scientists, which is akin to a, what's called a rally around the flag effect, right? So be aware of sort of the war metaphors here, um, and then that decreases in kind of uh, fall of 2020, as it's recognized that actually things are a lot more complicated. Um, there's a lot more am- am- ambiguity. The virus is not going away. We were told that we would kind of get rid of things if we all sacrificed for the greater good. And you have this sort of increase in in, in distrust. And and it's actually the studies are really interesting uh, around the relationship of trust, personality type, and then also political affiliation. Um, and there's just like so much research out there on, on these these kind of correlates. And also one thing you're getting to like, why did certain people, uh, why were they willing to protest? Um, one is actually like trauma experience. So people who have been traumatized or experienced like injustices in their life and don't, they don't trust the government because they, the government might have abused them or stolen from them or lied to them, right? And so those people are naturally going to distrust the government. Um, and so they, yeah, that's one sort of you know correlate of of distrust, um, and I think what we've also seen now is this 
this long-term effect of, of, the, of, of the COVID policies and growing distrust in government, scientific, scientific expertise, um, et cetera. And I think that there needs to be, well, anyhow, I won't get into recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can do another podcast yeah, on that. Exactly. But, uh, I do think that I, I agree with that. That uh, I mean, I just like, like a, as a personal anecdote, my trust in in scientific institutions, in public health institutions, yeah. is is I never anticipated in my life it being so low. Yeah, uh, I mean, I. I I actually tend to be fairly trusting of these institutions before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, being, being a member of large one, uh, like a, a university one, yeah. university uh, institution that I, I, I not just trusted, I actually loved it's my home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at this point uh, in the pandemic, it's uh, at, at this point, uh, three, three and a half years on, I just don't have any trust at all in that, that these large institutions are going to be able to meet the needs that, that their missions require them to meet. Yeah. Yeah, and I, so I kind of share a similar experience of starting the pandemic with high trust in government and our scientific institutions, and then just sort of plummeting as I kind of was aware of the sort of um, lack of nuance and sort of half-truths that were coming out. Um, and it's also led to me questioning the whole notion that trust is funded or is like the highest virtue in citizenship. I, I, I don't know if that's true, but anyhow, that's more of a philosophical conversation. Okay, uh, section nine is environment. And this one's interesting because I remember uh, when the lockdowns first hit, um, my first instinct, and this, you know, like, and I, I, I wasn't the only one because I would read some other folks who were writing this, um, was that in some ways the, the lockdowns might be good for the environment. Like yeah. you're going to see fewer factories operating. You're going to see, you know, like the the, the kind, like the broadly broadly speaking, the environment uh, yes. uh, is is impacted negatively by by like ex, ex, you know economic activity, uh, yeah. uh, you know, at least some kinds of economic activity. And so the environment might improve. Mm-hmm. What what does the literature actually say? Yeah, so that was an important narrative, actually, almost, and it verged on utopianism for a period of time. And I think it did actually provide this sort of feel-good element to lockdown. Um, and then sort of secondly, a lot of people did experience some positives for the first number of weeks, right? They spent more time outdoors. Um, there was less sort of um, you know activity in national parks, et cetera. But what the literature shows is that that was short-lived. Those were short-lived benefits, and they came with a lot of drawbacks. So in terms of national parks, national parks saw their revenues plummet. Which in many countries, you know, now uh, has cr- increased the threat of development pressures for them because they weren't able to preserve, you know, their animals or, or the sort of natural sort of um, species that they had. Uh, another example: invasive species management was affected negatively. So you had actually increases in invasive species in certain areas of the United States or Europe. There's some good studies around around that, um, and even the narrative so um, that the lockdowns decreased carbon emissions actually is much more complicated. So the growth rate of carbon emissions did not change. And actually methane and ozone increased during the during during the pandemic. And and the atmospheric scientists, there's some really interesting papers about this. And there's they're kind of going back and forth trying to understand why that is the case. And it, and, and I think it's the 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 analysis of COVID lockdowns are going to provide this sort of it's a natural experiment for trying to understand the atmosphere and the relationship you know between climate and 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 emissions. Um, so that's one kind of unusual finding, and there's a number of good papers on that. So that's kind of accepted in the literature. Um, and then another negative effect were, was the growth in plastic pollution. So before the before the pandemic, everything's about reducing plastics, and then suddenly we have masks just thrown on the ground in the ocean everywhere. Um, 
and there's actually quite there's like this small little niche area of masks and aquatic pollution that's really interesting like the breakdown of the masks in the aquatic ecosystems and um a lot of really interesting research on just masks and and, and the oceans um and you had yeah between 100 billion and 400 billion face masks you know increasing and those are sort of all over the world now and um so that's that's another kind of negative effect there, there's, a, there's like a i guess a, a part of the pacific ocean where a lot of this uh detritus collects yes and i see i remember seeing pictures online about of like how how many masks have collected into this uh this garbage yeah. patch in the middle of the pacific ocean yeah um I mean, it's it's this uh, like the, what strikes me from this section is that uh, you know the environment is a very complex system, interconnected uh, in ways that we don't fully understand, or you are very far from fully understanding. So just as the economy is, just as our, yeah. just as our, our, our uh, these these the, the way with the infectious disease spreads, these are very very complex systems, mm -hmm. and simplistic understandings of like some intervention is going to improve things. It, it, often uh, the reality defies us that we end yeah, up with things exactly. that we did could not possibly have expected. I mean, didn't did not expect. Um, I, I mean, I'll give you one for instance here that I I, I remember uh, seeing a statistic that traffic accidents actually increased in 2020. The deaths from traffic accidents actually yeah. increased in 2020. Right. I, I didn't expect that. Well, how could that be? People were driving less. Yeah. But it turns out people the the fewer people who were driving were driving much more recklessly. Yeah. Um, exactly. And so, yeah, it's just it's the, the the impact on the environment turns out to be much more complicated. It's not uh, a lot. Uh, and I remember uh, seeing a lot of people saying, "Oh, how come you?" Uh, how, uh, with an accusation to me because I have a PhD in economics. Mm -hmm. Well, how come you value the economy so much more than the lives or the environment? Yeah. Um, but you know, it's not clear that at all that these kinds of interventions improve the environment. Is what I took from from your chapter. It's it's yeah. a very complicated story. Yes, we shouldn't assume these sort of simplistic narratives. And the term unintended consequences or unanticipated consequences is a good one. Uh, it's not necessarily always adequate. And in some instances, I've been I've, I've seen the term being used to obfuscate responsibility for policies. It's like, oh, well, we couldn't have anticipated that. And it's like, no, 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 you, you actually kind of could have. Yeah, but <laughs> not all the time, though, obviously, but um, or with okay. certain things. Last category, uh, and then then we can we can we can close. Uh, you've been thank you for taking spending all this time with me, Kevin. I really appreciate it. But it's, it's, I think it's so important for the listeners to understand the scope of the, yeah. of the work you've done here, just so they can see start to think about the full scope of what these lockdowns actually did. Uh, the last category is governance. Uh, yes, armed conflict. Freedom, human rights. Uh, uh, now, uh, we, you know, we're talking on October 13, thousand twenty three. A new, a, a enormous new war has just broken out in the in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, between the uh, between Hamas and uh, Israel, uh, it, we're what like a year and some on in the war between Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. Um, the, the 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 like you know the, the, the now are these related to lockdowns? What's what 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 kind of, what what is that? What does that actually mean? I mean, these are obviously have complicated things yeah. by the, of their own and stories of their own. Um, how do how does the how, what what impact does lockdown have? What does the literature say about the impact of lockdown have on uh, on on like like the, the the ground for conflicts developing yeah. and for governance generally? Yeah. So I mean, I'll I'll, I'll say two things. Um, one is that there's actually this um, quite a number of journalists that postulated that uh, Putin 
um, he was very, he was, he's, a, he's actually supposedly a germaphobe. Um, and during COVID, he, he isolated himself quite heavily. And if you think of um, some of the pictures around the Kremlin, he's sort of maintaining this social distancing thing from some of the Western leaders as they were trying to, to prevent the war in Ukraine. So there's sort of, sort of different um, ideas that, you know, his fear of COVID led to this sort of insularity. I don't know if that's completely true, because it's also you've got to consider his age and sort of where he is and, and sort of the political career that he's had. But it's certainly something that's been bounced around. Um, second of all, just in general, as a governance statement, conducting government by Zoom is not government, right? Like, if I just think about like my local council on the West Coast, um, they were still conducting their public engagement sessions on Zoom in late 2022. And you can't actually confront your elected leaders or your, your council members properly on Zoom, right? So citizens, the, the, the input of citizens in general across the board reduced, you know, during this sort of transition to governing by Zoom. Um, and I, I, I think that it probably it impacted all sorts of um, interpersonal and, you know, uh, not just um, uh, government, but also corporate management um, and this sort of notion that human relationships can be managed in this way. Um, in, uh, in terms of um, armed conflict, um, the study, so there's there was a bunch of different hypotheses that it would increase, you know, COVID would increase armed conflict or decrease it. This the kind of... Um, consensus or emerging consensus is that it didn't really increase armed conflict across the board, but in certain areas of the world it did, especially in Africa. So there's a, a couple of good studies showing a 20% increase in armed conflict in Africa in, uh, in 2020 and 2021. Um, uh, in terms of the Middle East, I don't, I don't know. There's different studies around that. Um, but another kind of important thing about governance and the relationship of, you know, the, the governing and the governed is that um, it, the COVID years saw an unprecedented reduction in freedom and democracy across the world. And, and this is like Freedom House, you know, The Economist, major indexes around freedom and, and, and citizen rights, human rights, show that this was like an astronomical decrease, by far the largest in the last 20 to 30 years. And, and that it also occurred on the tail end of, of a decrease since the end of the Cold War, or sorry, over the last 20 years since like, you know, after, in, after the war on terror. So um, it's precipitated all sorts of, you know, strange uh, increases in autocratic behavior and semi-autocratic behavior. Um, and, and also, like, there was tons of human rights abuses that, that occurred. Um, just pick prisons as one place, right? Like, prisons had some of the harshest lockdowns. They, a lot of them just went into full-on uh, solitary confinement for months at, uh, at, a, at, a, at a time. Um, and, um, yeah, the human rights abuses were, were sort of documented by Amnesty International and others. Um, but the language around relating that to lockdown as a policy is, is often very circums, you know, they kind of skirt around the issue. And I think that's unfortunate that these advocacy organizations or human rights organizations haven't been more upfront about it. Um, I, mean, I, I remember yeah. there, I just saw a story a, few, a couple a month ago or so, uh, from a court case in Melbourne that there was a public housing uh uh you know these these essentially these large public housing uh facilities these buildings yeah that had been locked down for weeks um where the people inside were not allowed to leave at all right they were like you need to go out to go groceries yeah um and uh the the, the it, although the courts in australia have been reluctant to to criticize the government for this they actually had to find that this was a this was a human rights violation that they, yeah. they essentially had uh unlawfully 
uh, un un unlawfully detained a vast number of the, the, of the of the residents of this of public housing. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, <laughs> it was the, the thing I found amusing was that they actually put a price on the, the violation of human rights. Each each adult got twenty two hundred dollars, and each mm. child got eleven hundred dollars for this violation of their of their basic fundamental human rights. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it struck me as kind of low, but you know, yeah. at least a step forward. Yeah. And probably some of the most um, severe violations in that regard occurred in China, um, you know, during the zero COVID policies and, and people being literally locked in or, or uh, sort of, uh, yeah, confined to their apartment blocks and then having fires inside of them, all sorts of just um, extreme measures that were used there. Um, so... Okay, Kevin. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. But, but before you, uh, we've now completed the review of your paper. Yeah. Um, but I would love to love, love to know what what's what's next for you, and what's next for Collateral Global. Like, I mean, this is a, this is a, yeah. a, a, a charity that has as its mission to document these things. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the the scholarly literature on on these items that we've been talking about the last uh, you know seventy five minutes. Yeah. Um. What, what's what what's Collateral Global going to be doing going forward, and, and how are you going to be in, in, involved in leading this? Yeah, so I'm I'm the new director of Collateral Global, and uh, sort of our our vision here is on on the one hand we're looking backwards. We want to do the rigorous research that needs to be done to bring this evidence forward into the future to say, okay, this is what happened during the COVID years. But then also thinking about that future, how can we better balance the the societal trade offs during a, a pandemic between viral control and all of these societal consequences, um, so that we can maximize the health and well being of everyone. Um, and so that's, that's our vision for, uh, going forward. And we have kind of four major objectives. Um, one is to yeah, analyze the evidence in a scholarly uh, and rigorous way. Uh, the second one is to convene networks of researchers, um, to, to conduct the research, but also to engage with their, um, with, with policymakers, with institutions in their countries. And we're a global organization. So we're, we're trying to do this as, in, in as many countries as we possibly can. Um, and then we also want to provide tools for decision making in the event of a future pandemic. And then sort of a final um, set of activities is around education and outreach. Um, and so uh, just to give you one example of the things that we're planning um, in the next sort of year or two is we're going to be commissioning country evaluations of, uh, of, the, of, of the consequences of COVID policies in, in, in individual countries that, that take this framework and apply it, for example, to the United States, to Australia, to South Africa, to Peru, um, and then present those to decision makers in those countries and say, look, this is what happened you know, during these years. This is what your own academic research tells you about the consequences of that um, to kind of lift up the conversation from these ideological positions to a more you know scholastic and objective um, view of the world so yeah thank you so much kevin uh, so this is professor jay bhattacharya and uh speaking with kevin bardosh of, of collateral global uh thank you for listening and uh let's uh let's talk next time bye now thanks